All right, episode number 22 with Mitch Gallagher here at Sweetwater Sound in Fort Wayne, Indiana. We're sitting at the uh, coffee shop here. Just finished a great interview. I know you're going to really enjoy it. Mitch, uh, I know a lot of you know Mitch from his great product videos on Sweetwater, and he does some great interviews with some artists and producers and engineers and different musicians here as well. Uh, He's a super great guitar player. He's got a new EP out, and make sure you check that out. Um, I thought I'd sit down and go back to see how Mitch got his start and uh, how he got into the music industry and how he became so knowledgeable in so many different things. Uh, I think you'll really enjoy this one. Make sure you check out all the uh, episodes I have out now on iTunes. You can check that out by searching uh, In Session with Darren Walters or going to my uh, webpage, which is www.darrenwalterspodcast.com. Make sure you leave comments and ratings, and I uh, appreciate if you want to follow along and find all these other great interviews I'll be doing and all the ones I've done up to now. And uh, But I know you're going to really enjoy this one with Mitch. So sit back and relax and enjoy. Perfect. We're rolling. All right. Good to have you here, Mitch. Thank you. I'm, I'm like I was telling you. I'm very honored to be asked to participate. This is very cool. Well, it's an honor to have you as a guest. Uh, we're here at Sweetwater. Yeah, we're in, in the, Fort Wayne, Indiana, in the iconic coffee shop area. So you hear the nice background music right. and the, you know, <laughs> a little sounds, mood music for the sounds podcast. very romantic yeah. for our first meeting. <laughs> <laughs> so let's dive back. I really on this podcast. I want to get back and learn a little bit more about about you. Sure. Um, where, where did you grow up? I grew up in a small town in North Dakota, Jamestown, North Dakota, yeah. which is uh, halfway between Bismarck and Fargo, which uh, maybe your listeners recognize those names. Yeah. Um, and uh, a small town. Uh, my family has always been from there. And, and, uh, and so, uh, yeah, it was a great place to grow up and uh, kind of got started in music early. My mom was, was uh, actually with her sisters when they were young, uh, were the Freed Sisters, okay. and they actually released a record yeah. and uh, played locally and regionally around around the area. And so she uh, she made sure we got started in, in music pretty early, which I'm forever grateful for. Yeah, it's nice to have someone, especially family wise, that's in it, right. or to kind of push you along and get you, especially get it, get you going started. Yeah, started early. Um, so what was the was the guitar the thing you gravitated to first, or was it something else? Well, let's see. I, I um, I started out singing in the boys' choir yeah. when I was in grade school, and uh, also started playing trombone when I was in grade school. Oh, there you so go. I was in the the grade school band. I was in the grade school the boys' choir, and uh, so why the trombone? Was it one of those things where you did you pick it, or was it one? <laughs> that was the one that thing that was left, and you grabbed it. Well, I, I remember we went in, we met the band director, and I was like, I want to play trumpet. I want to be a trumpet player. And he's yeah. like, You look like a trombone player. You yeah. should really play trombone. And so I, I played trombone. It was fine. I, I enjoyed playing trombone. Yeah. yeah. So obviously you, you did that through high school, mm-hmm. up yeah. till I was yeah, middle part of high school. Yeah, I, I played in the band and then I, you know I was in sports and uh, picked up guitar. Oh, somewhere around uh, when I was fourteen or fifteen, probably about when I started. Uh, Kiss Alive had come out. Oh, I, was yeah. a, I was a huge fan of, of that album. Yeah, and uh, you know I just started wanting to play. And uh, one Christmas there was a, a guitar under the under the tree. Do you, uh, do you remember, well, you probably remember what guitar that was. was do you remember? What, I actually, do remember what yeah. it was. It was a little, uh, it was a Ventura a nylon oh, yeah. string yeah. guitar. And when you plucked it right by the bridge, I thought that sounded pretty electric. Yeah. 
<laughs> you don't still have it, do you? I don't still have that one, no. I always ask that, some yeah. of my guests. I have if, my first electric. Oh, do I you? Bought. Yeah, I, I worked summers for my dad. Uh, the, the family had a, a, heat, a heat plumbing and heating uh, contracting shop. And uh, so I worked summers, you know, manual labor, digging ditches and hauling big pieces of pipe around and, yeah. and all that kind of stuff and saved up my money. And I bought a Encore Les Paul copy, which I still actually do have. Yeah. You probably have a lot of guitars, I imagine. You know, not as many as I did. Yeah. I've, uh, I, I uh, got to a point where I said, I want to just keep the ones that I really play. Yeah. And, and uh, I'm fortunate here at Sweetwater, we have thousands and thousands of guitars go through, and I, I've just encountered some that really spoke to me. Yeah. And so uh, I've settled on, I think, five or six now that I kind of play all the time as far as electrics go. It's sort of like having satellite radio in your car, right? You've got 200 and whatever channels. Right. But you only really listen to five or six of yeah. them, right? Like, yeah. You know, it's the same with instruments. You know, right. you're only going to go to the ones. Um, I always say the same thing with clothes in your closet. You know, there's five shirts you probably wear all the time, and the rest right. you kind of every once in a while you'll get to, right? Yes, exactly, exactly. So, did you uh, were you self-taught, or did you have a teacher? Uh, how did you get going with that? On guitar, I was self-taught initially, and through high school, I played along with records in the basement and uh, started, you know, garage bands and uh, yeah. started doing that. And uh, actually, I went to college and studied electrical engineering and uh, decided that wasn't really the right path for me. After about a year, I uh, left school and went on the road with a rock band Yeah, and did that for about a year and then shifted over and went out with a country band for about a year. Okay. And, uh, and I played all over the Midwest and up into to Canada a bit and uh, you know, covered a lot, a lot of ground in those years and learned a lot, obviously. Yeah. Then I decided I'd go back to school, so I went back to school to study music. So from that point on, I had classical guitar lessons, I had electric guitar lessons and things. And uh, so I started out self-taught, but then had some, have had a lot of lessons since. Yeah, yeah. So what was it like, the, the first band experience, getting the, in, into that? How did that all come about? Oh, it was, it was so much fun. It was, uh, my brother uh, played drums yeah. and later switched to bass, actually. But uh, the two of us were huge Rush fans. So we would sit in the basement and try to play along with 2112, yeah. you know, uh, album. He was in his bedroom, I was in mine, and we had the stereo cranked up in between us and, and uh, we'd play along. And, and so we, uh, we talked a friend into uh, playing bass. And I knew another guy uh, who also was named Mitch, uh, Mitch Bird, who played guitar. And so the four of us started meeting up in the garage and, uh, and jamming a little bit. And uh, I have tapes. Actually, I have cassette tapes yeah, of some, yeah. of those, uh, some of those early jams and some of the, the gigs we'd play at the, you know, the, the, teen, the teen hang spots, you know, yeah. <laughs> some of those things. It's, I've talked about it before, but it, it's unfortunate that, you know, in the era we grew up in, that... We didn't have the phones that were you, you shot video all the time right. with. Because I'm sure there's probably times you get audio, but it would be great to have a lot of documented video of, of learning and your first band experience and all that stuff. It but, would be really fun to see that if it, if it was around. But, you know, I have some cassettes, so I'm happy to have those. Yeah, yeah. But you probably just don't ever go back and listen to them. Not very often. <laughs> I, you know, I did at, at one point, and it's been a number of years ago, I did transfer them into the computer. Yeah. And just so they were, because I was afraid the cassettes were going to, you know. Yeah. Uh, give up and so uh, so I did hear them at, at that point and it, it, it is entertaining yeah it, it's neat to go back and it's you know I think it's humbling but it's <laughs> I've also talked a lot too it's back in the day getting a band together was a really a great thing and there was a lot of kids you know when you're 15 16 17 18 there are a lot of other kids playing right it wasn't as hard to put a band together I think nowadays it seems like friends of mine who have kids who may play an instrument the first thing i hear is like yeah it's really hard to find anyone for them 
right. to perform with or get a band together with. It happens, but I don't think it happens as much uh, as it used to. Yeah, I think it depends on where you were. Where, yeah. where I grew up, there were not very many musicians. There weren't, yeah. weren't very many people. I knew a couple of guys who were a few years older than me, and there were a few bands of you know guys who were five, ten years older yeah. came and went. But really, I can't think of too many other people in my age group who were playing. But it was a small town. Yeah, you know, in a larger town, maybe uh, things would have been different. You know, we do something here at, at Sweetwater. We do uh, uh, these summer uh, week-long uh, events called Rock Camp. Yeah. And the kids come in and, and they get put into bands and, and they write songs together and they learn songs and they perform in our theater and they go into the studio and record a, an actual recording of their song. And, That's a great idea. And, uh, and so it, it's gotten overwhelmingly successful because kids do want to come in. But it, what's been fun to watch is that uh, those bands stay together. Oh, wow. After the rock camp yeah. ends, the kids will keep playing together, and, yeah. and uh, not all of them, but they, yeah. uh, they do uh, stay together, and you see them out playing around and stuff, which is really cool. Yeah, yeah. So your first touring band, was that the, would you be the country band, or is it the one? It was the first full-time band I was, yeah. I was in was called, uh, was called Shatter, mm-hmm. and we played, uh, this would have been the early 80s, yeah. and we were a cover band doing you know, all of the, the hits of the day, yeah. and we played North Dakota, Minnesota, South Dakota, uh, up, up into uh, uh, Saskatchewan. Yeah. Uh, yeah, basically in that area, maybe down in Nebraska, we got maybe that far. So kind of that upper Midwestern part of the United States is where we were focused on. But that was a full-time band, um, a five-piece, guitar-based drums, keyboards, and vocals. Yeah. So were you playing the usual club circuit? Were you doing the five, six nights a week mm-hmm. type thing? Yeah. Yeah, in those days, there were a lot of those. Five, six night a week clubs. Yeah. Saturday and matinee or whatever there was. A lot of them had a band house so that you could stay oh, in yeah. or, the, or a set of hotel rooms you could stay in or they'd give you meals or whatever. I mean, that's part of the whole deal. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, you could you could do it full time. So I got rid of the apartment, you know, parked my car and, and uh, we got in the truck and off we went and did that full time. There's something really great about, too, going back to that time when you did have gigs that were six nights a week. I mean, it's a lot to playing, but as a band, you would get really tight. Yes, indeed. Yeah, not very often where you can you can play six, six nights a week anymore. Yeah, it's you can and you can rehearse all you want. You can rehearse yeah. six nights a week, but it's not the same as being on stage in front of people. It is different, isn't it? Yeah, it sure is. Yeah, yeah I know you can rehearse a show for like a year, and but that first night, it's right. yeah, it's a way different thing. Yeah, I always you know when you do those one-off gigs like that after rehearsing a bunch, I always wish there were three or four more gigs because I know by the end of that third or fourth one, you'd really be firing on all cylinders at that point. Yeah, exactly. So. The touring band lasted a year or two? About a year, year and yeah. a half maybe, yeah. Yeah, yeah that, that one before I shifted to the, the second one, which was yeah. a country band. And we were more in the, the hotel lounge circuit, which at that time oh. was a pretty good circuit through the U.S. Uh, you know, uh, we were played over into uh, Wisconsin and, and uh, again up into Canada a bit and all over the Midwest yeah. with that as well. But that was also full time. So did you have country chops, or was that something you had to learn? Or you know, I, I sat down and, and learned some of that stuff. Yeah, you know, picked it up, and I was still actually playing my rock guitars. I you know, it took me a while before I got a Telecaster, so yeah. I'd, you know, be authentic. But uh, uh, yeah, yeah. So I had to I had to sit down and learn some pedal steel licks. And I think country gets perceived as it, as it's way easier than it really is. Right. Yeah. And I I, I don't actually have any recordings of that band. I, I wish I did, but I'm sure I was not an authentic country player even remotely in those in those days. Uh, but you know, it was it was fine. It's a great experience. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I learned a lot doing that too. Yeah, yeah. So where'd you find yourself once you finished up with the country band? Uh, I decided that uh, so the the short story is that um, I started meeting 
uh, musicians on that level who were a lot older than me, yeah. who were still doing the same kind of thing. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but I decided that that wasn't a direction I wanted to continue doing. Yeah. You know, if I wasn't going to move up, um, I wanted to kind of shift. And, and uh, so I decided to go back to college. Yeah. So I went back to uh, the school at that time was called Moorhead State University. I think it's called uh, Minnesota State University now. Uh, same school, different different name. Yeah. And uh, they were just kind of getting started with an audio recording program. And uh, they had a great guitar teacher there, Mike Coates. And uh, he was also involved in the audio side of things. And I, I was able to come in um, and, and, of course, take all the classes and take up classical guitar and study that. But because I had a lot of experience just doing tech on the road, yeah. you know, running PAs, setting PAs up, wiring things up, uh, running the Porta Studio to make demos, you know, that, that kind of stuff, yeah. I was able to pretty much immediately step into being able to teach some of the classes. So I started okay. teaching recording classes to some of the other students. And, and uh, I, did, I did, didn't ever teach guitar at that school. I taught on some summer programs at the school, but I started teaching lessons at a uh, store. Okay. Yeah. That was nearby. So I was back studying school full time. Studying. I was back in school, school. full time studying music, uh, playing every weekend. Uh, I got into kind of a group of, uh, I guess you'd call them casual musicians. There was maybe a pool of 10, 15 musicians, and somebody would get a gig, and they'd call around till they got a couple of guitar players, a bass player, and a drummer, and yeah. you'd go and play the wedding or the corporate gig or you know whatever it was. And so, for a long time, I, I earned my spending money by playing every Friday and Saturday night with a different group of people with a different set of songs with no charts and no nothing. Somebody would call something they knew and they'd start and you'd follow and play, which yeah. was a tremendous experience, just a tremendous learning experience. Yeah. I don't know if a lot of people get anymore, you know, yeah. that, that kind of a thing to, to just step on stage and count it off. Here we go. It's in C. And I think you really learn to figure out what actually is going to come up next. Right. I mean, I think when you do that, eventually you get to the point where you, you understand where most music go, right? You can right. anticipate what the next chord's going to be. Sometimes it won't go there, but yeah. you can anticipate it, and you get really good at that. But right. it takes lots of practice. Yeah, you get the you, you start to be able to hear where the progression is going, mm -hmm. and you get really quick at recognizing, okay, this is the verse, this is the chorus, the verse is coming back, and so it was these four chords or whatever. Yeah. Uh, what I found more challenging is that... Uh, it was a huge benefit to getting hired if you could also just quickly throw in harmony vocals. Oh, yeah. And so being able to hear the chorus once and step up and throw a harmony in is a really valuable skill. Yeah. To, uh, you know, anytime you can add vocals to your playing, you become that much more you know, marketable, for lack of a better yeah. way to say it. And uh, so I learned a lot about singing doing that as well. I don't consider myself a, a you know, a stellar lead singer by any stretch of the imagination, but I, I, uh, it is something that you offer along with your playing, and I think that goes a long way toward, toward making you uh, more more uh, marketable to other bands. Yeah, it's definitely more, if you can if you can sing, uh, and then you don't have to be a lead singer. No. I mean, to sing backgrounds, you just got to be able to hit the notes and know which ones to hit. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. So, you obviously uh, were teaching recording. What was, you said you started more back, your first recording experience more in the portable Porta studio. Yeah, uh, yeah. The the rock band I was on the road with, uh, the manager of the band or the booking agent of the band had a uh, Porta studio, which was about as big as this table we're sitting in front of, yeah. a, you know, four track cassette recorder. And uh, so I figured out how to run that, and we recorded a little demo that they would send to clubs and stuff for us to listen to. So I, I had, you know, experience doing that, but I also uh, was just always a guy in the band who knew how to connect the PA, knew yeah. how to make the lights work, knew how to fix the amps when they blew up, you know, that, that kind of stuff. So I had a lot of technology background. Um, 
and learned a lot about recording along the way and started trying to really educate myself in that area. And so I was, I was qualified to teach kind of entry-level recording in those, in those days. And, yeah. and uh, you know, the more advanced stuff uh, would, some, would move to somebody else. Yeah. Know, at that point. So did you feel like you just had the recording bug when you're... Yeah. Is that, yeah, it's a technical side of things. Yeah, I was the I same way as player, but the tech stuff really, you know, stuff I really gravitate to a lot too. It's, it's yeah. I love being able to patch the PA in and mm-hmm. I was the same way when I was young I was the guy who patched the PA and right. um, did all that stuff so yeah same type of upbringing and same type of ideas yeah, yeah I remember at the, the music store I taught guitar lessons at it was called Marguerite's Music uh, in Moorhead and uh, they uh, one day this box came in and it was a I think it was a Sonus MIDI interface that came with a little piece of software and they said, you know, we don't know what to do with this. Take it home and figure it out. And it was yeah. for, a, I happened to own a Commodore 64, and it was for Commodore 64. And so I yeah. took it home and figured it out, and I kind of got bit by that bug as well. So I started teaching some synthesis classes and, you know, bought a little Casio CZ-101 and the Yamaha DX100 and, yeah. and just started teaching myself that whole world too, which is, I mean, all that has led to so many things for me. It's really amazing looking back on it if I'd, if I'd only known, <laughs> you know, at the time. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, you know, it's a certain personality, just something you gravitate, you want to learn a lot, right? You seem like right. a person who really wants to learn everything and yeah. never want to stop learning, right? No, that's, yeah, that curiosity, Yeah, I, th- I think is a big part of it. I just always like to know how things work. And I, I saw the potential, even with that very primitive interface, for being able to, to make music with it and the things you could do that I couldn't do just sitting there with my guitar. Yeah. You know, being able to add a drum part or a, a bass part or keyboards that I, I couldn't play, you know, certainly all at the same time. And I didn't have the recording facilities to record all that stuff. So being yeah. able to write music and hear it more fully realized was was really amazing to me and really got me started composing and, and writing music too. And back probably when you're in the band performing, being able, on top of that, being able to be a singer, you're someone who is able to patch the PA system and make right. it work. And that is another thing that probably really made you very valuable. It does, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, any of those extra skills you can offer besides your, uh, your, your playing, yeah. you, they just make you more, like you say, more valuable. Yeah. In so many situations. Yeah, I know when I was younger, I was touring with uh, a good friend of mine now, and, and it came to a point where it's like, you know what? We really need someone to advance these shows we're doing. There's, you know, we're coming in doing decent-sized shows, and we're coming, and no one knows what we need or no one's technical enough, and it was one of those skills I figured, I can do that. I know about the PA system. I know what we need. I know. So put that together, um, and then all of a sudden, bam, you became way more valuable. Right. And then it's just, oh, well, okay, we'll throw you extra here and then extra here. Before you know it, you're making twice as much as anyone else in the band. Yeah. And uh, not that you're trying, but just for me, it was, well, I just wanted to show up at the gig and make it good for everybody. Right. Um, and it was when I looked at it, and I'm probably the same as you, you weren't really probably doing it. So you know, oh, there's maybe there's a chance for me to make an extra 50 bucks here or whatever. It was more of a chance that, you know, you just wanted to make it good and you were interested in it. Right. And it just happened that it benefited everybody else. So it was, right. you know, a good thing. Right. Or you're just kind of the guy you can do it. Yeah. And so somebody's got to do it. Yeah. So or either that or you have to find someone. So, you know, and I never minded stepping up and doing that stuff. So it was just fun for me, too. Yeah. Yeah. No, I totally understand that. So you found your, your teaching, doing all that stuff. So mm-hmm. how long did that last for there? Well, I was back, it probably took me three years, three and a half years to finish school. So I was studying classical guitar, studying electric guitar, teaching guitar lessons, teaching classes at the school, uh, 
playing every weekend. I, I had a fusion group at, yeah. with other students at school, so I was doing tons of playing. Uh, and then all the classes yeah. <laughs> that you have to do as well. So that was probably three, three and a half years of just constant immersion yeah. in music and technology. That's, uh, that's a lot. I mean, that's... Yeah, it was, it was so cool. So what age would you have been at that time? I'd have been probably mid-20s, oh. you know, 25, 24, 25. Yeah, and that's a really good age where you're really soaking it all in. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was a great time to be a sponge. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So where did that lead you after that? Where was the next thing you went into? So I graduated from, from uh, college mm-hmm. and um, didn't quite know what to do. I'd really gotten very much into writing music, but I kind of had in the back of my mind, maybe I'll be a studio musician. But if I was honest with myself, I wasn't probably versatile enough and I wasn't a good enough reader and I wasn't, you know. Um, and I didn't quite know how to just show up in Nashville or L.A. and say, hey, I'm a studio guitarist. And yeah. Here I am. <laughs> you know, I'd, I'd read Guitar Player magazine of guys who'd done that, and I was like, "How do you even do that?" I don't. I didn't. You know, wasn't in my makeup. wasn't in my DNA to understand yeah. how to how to make that work. So I decided that I would continue my education because I'd really gotten into composing, really gotten into classical guitar. Um, I was into uh, the technology side of things. So I uh, applied to a number of programs around the uh, the country, and ended up going to uh, the University of Missouri in Kansas City. And there was a, a, a great program there, and uh, I was able to study composition and electronic music composition, and also classical guitar with some some wonderful teachers that were there. And uh, bigger town, yeah. So more opportunity. I built a project studio in my house. I uh, started working at a music store there, um, first selling MIDI gear and, and keyboards and that kind of thing, and yeah. then you know selling guitars as well. And I also started running some classes where we'd offer those to the public. On Saturdays, you could come in and take a three-hour class on recording or a three-hour class on MIDI or, or whatever, uh, and then started teaching some stuff to the other salespeople yeah. to try and raise the, the level and all that kind of stuff, and uh, got into several bands there. There were uh, uh, some bands that I would say got to the point of showcasing. You know, We were writing original music and would record an album in my uh, uh, project studio, and, and uh, so we were playing some of the bigger clubs and opening concerts, and, doing, and then I was also playing weekends and doing some casual stuff, and I was running live sound and, yeah. and uh, teaching a few private guitar lessons here and there when somebody would, would, uh, would ask. And so I guess it's just what you do, right? You, yeah. you do as much as you can. Anytime an opportunity comes up, you say yes. You know, and in yeah. those days, I never said no. Yeah. You know, still don't say no very often um, because it's always an opportunity, and you never know where that stuff's going to lead. And, and exactly. over and over again, I've seen over and over again that just the – something that you don't think is important just leads to something else and all of a sudden you're doing something that's really cool or really fun or making great money or whatever whatever it might be yeah i think and i think that's a really good lesson for a lot of your musicians as well that when you're sitting at home on monday tuesday wednesday or whatever and and not performing you should be doing something even though it doesn't involve a payment right um there's lots of i mean I would, I would, yes. If I, you can get payment, great. But there's things to do, uh, obviously practicing and all that. But there's lots of things that you can throw yourself into that you, like you mentioned, that you may not think would bring something. But lots of times, that's where the, the gold is. Sometimes you right. just never know. It's like the same thing. You could be playing. There could be five people in the audience, but there'd be that one person right. that could change your life. Right. And you just never know when that happens. Yeah, the only, the only thing you have to be careful of is that you aren't being taken advantage of. Sure. Because yeah. for, you know, as musicians, we get asked to do so many things for free. Yeah. It just, they're, 
well, that's a whole other conversation of the value of, of that, yeah. you know, all the skill and everything. So, so I try to be careful of that. I try yeah. to not be in something where I'm just doing it for somebody else's gain. Yeah. And I'm not getting much out of it. Exactly. You know, or, or see a potential there or whatever. And yeah, sometimes it's hard to judge. So, yeah, yeah. like I said, I rarely said no. Yeah. Very, very rarely would, would say no in those days. And I had some amazing gigs and learned something at all of them. And that's probably as big a, uh, big a part of it as anything is that everything you do, there's, there's, you probably learn something mm-hmm. from it one way or another, whether it's interacting with artists or, you know, learning how you prevent feedback or, you know, how to set up faster or how to troubleshoot. You know, that's, that's something I learned early on. If you want to learn one skill that will make you valuable to the rest of the world, learn how to troubleshoot. Yeah. If exactly. you can logically strategically troubleshoot problems your value goes through the roof because you know a problem solver is so valuable yeah yeah i learned that very early too i've been trying to teach my 16 year old nephew yeah the art of troubleshooting i just just set him back something's going on so you need to step back and start trace it from the beginning and right need to figure it out yeah it's it's just act of having to do it lots of times and yeah um but yeah that's a big lesson for sure troubleshooting is is a lot of a lot of skill. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. And it is Get you out skill. of trouble. Yeah, it, it is definitely a skill, and it's a, it's something you learn and you get better at as you yeah. as you do it. And there's always problems. I mean, very rarely do you go to a gig where there isn't something. Yeah. A bad cable or something's not plugged in right or, you know, whatever. I mean, there's always something that needs to be fixed. My biggest pet peeve when I was younger was is anything plugged in out of phase. Oh, yeah. And I, I did go past a restaurant or you go past the entrance to a store and you walk by and you, you know you get that section in the middle between the two speakers and all of a sudden everything goes phasey and all and it, it drive me nuts sometimes i remember myself <laughs> going into like a shoe store and trying to tell them that their speakers are out of phase uh, right. and i'm halfway through the conversation going what am i doing right. <laughs> as a person that's no idea what i'm right. talking about yeah, the deer in the headlights look right i've done that in music stores sometimes too i've gone in and you go listen to a set of monitors say uh yeah your monitors are out of phase and i was like they just look at you. You have no idea what yep. you're talking about. So, well, come here, stand right in the middle, and I guess you either hear it or you don't hear it. But I've, I've run into that so many times. I went into the studio, the personal studio of a very prominent producer, engineer. I was in Los Angeles, actually, when I was with EQ Magazine, and we were visiting the studio and touring around, and he was playing me the latest album that he was working on, which went on to be a huge, huge album. And I'm sitting there listening to it going... Something's just not right here. And as we listened to it, it just became clear that the monitors were out of phase. Yeah. And I, mean, I had to say something. I had to say, man, I, I just want to check. <laughs> I don't know if you ever fixed it or not, but <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it is a yeah. You, once you learn that sound, you can't. Uh, oh, it just not recognize it. It haunts you every place you yeah. go. If something's out of phase, it just drives me crazy. Right. What was in when you're doing that project studio at mm-hmm. home there, what was, do you remember what type of gear you're recording on at that point? I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. Uh, I was, I have to think for just a second. I had a Tascam, I believe it was the eight track, it was Tascam or Fostex eight track cassette, kind of the all in one yep. mixer. And I can't remember the model of that. And uh, I had, a, at that point, I had moved up to an Atari 1040 ST computer to run MIDI on. had built-in MIDI ports yep. and a Notator, which is now oh, yeah, Logic. Yeah. You know. yeah. uh, I had an Akai S1000 sampler. Uh, I had started to build and eventually filled out uh, a rack that was called the TX rack from Yamaha, where each of the modules you put in was a DX7. Okay. So yeah. I ended up with eight DX7s in a rack and an S1000, that. and yeah. uh, I had a Roland uh, D110. Mm-hmm. So I had this kind of stable of, of MIDI gear 
that I was working with, and I did some of my own samples. I made my own bass guitar, and I had some drum samples that I made and, and some things like that. And so I was syncing the computer up to one track of the cassette. Okay, yeah. So you'd run a stripe of tone on one of the tracks, and then the computer would follow along behind yeah. that. So then you'd have really six tracks left over because you had to leave a safety track, but six yeah. tracks left over for vocals and for guitars and things. And uh, I did a lot of recording and a lot of writing on that rig, and we did a uh, we did an album for a, a country artist, actually, and uh, you know had some regional kind of gigs that came out of it. And I think they ended up, after I left, I think they ended up going to Nashville and showcasing and doing some, some things there. But, uh, awesome. But yeah, so that was that was kind of the. I, I had a few microphones. Uh, I think I had a Bayer 260 ribbon microphone, and of course SM57, and yeah. you know just basic yeah. kind of stuff. Nothing fancy. Yeah. You know, well, was, you don't need anything fancy. You just need it to work. Yeah, it worked. <laughs> you know, it, it worked. I, I think I had one. I, I don't remember what it was. I had one reasonably decent vocal microphone for the day. Yeah. You know, kind of thing, and a set of monitors that I found somewhere. Because uh, I worked at the music store, and so you know something would come in, and I'd figure out a way to you know buy it or whatever. Yeah, and probably at that time there wasn't, you know, today you can get into some pretty amazing things at a really reasonable price. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah you, could, you could outfit a studio that would really way better quality or, you know, just <laughs> leaps and bounds better quality than what I had for yeah. less. And back then there wasn't that middle ground too much, no. you know, kind of went from that up to 2-inch or yeah. to yeah. pro, and there wasn't much in that middle ground at no, all. That, that's exactly right. I think ADATS was kind of like the first thing that kind of came in that mm -hmm. middle market that kind of Yeah, well, I, while I was out. there, the ADAT came out, and I remember yeah. taking that home and doing some demos for the store because we yeah. got one. Yeah. And like the one sat there, you know, that to, to show, and I think you'd order other ones, and it took forever to get them. And yeah, they, they were, took a long... I remember when they first came out, they were... A long time coming. Yeah, they're long, and there was a long back order once they did actually come out. Yeah. That was a huge revelation to be able to record onto, onto that. And so I had that, and I had the little Elisa 16-channel mixer that had the, the um, conductive strips. Oh, for, yeah, you know, yeah. You could pour a can of Coke down yeah. it, and it wouldn't bother the mixer because it was all surface mount and all yeah, yeah. conductive or whatever. Um, and that was my little 8-track recording rig after that, which was an amazing leap forward. You know, t no tape noise and, yeah. and uh, all that that you could do with the ADAS. So, yeah, that was a, that was a huge jump forward. Yeah, I had, uh, in my studio back in the day, I had, I moved from a Tascam. I had a Tascam 1-inch 24-track. Hmm. Um, you had the real thing. Yeah. Uh, luckily enough, I had that. But it was still super noisy still. Right. Noise floor was gigantic on that. And then I had jumped up uh, and got a couple ADATs, I think, after that. And then eventually, the next year, I bought another one. And I think at one point, I had four. Yeah. Uh, but it was, I still remember that whole time shift. You know, you'd start rewinding one and you got three of them chasing them back. Right. And, and if you're trying to, you know, run a verse and punching in the guitar part, um, you just learn quick. Yeah, you just sub everything down to one machine, get, put a two mix in there, and you just run on one machine. Right. And then later on, you can just keep running, you know, two, three, or four. Right. But yeah, that's, right. but at the time, man, that was. Yeah, I was well. I, I had when I was in school, the the school in undergrad school in Moorhead, we had an eight track and we had a Soundcraft mixer, and we had a nice microphone collection and some uh, some SPX 90s and you know a Lexicon reverb, and so we had some nice gear there. Yeah. So trying to recreate that at home and get anything that sounded even remotely like that in those days was very different. Yeah. Trying to do that, and the ADAT changed all that. Oh yeah, I had eventually got the. I'm not sure if you remember. Do you remember PV came out with a big huge recording console? Sure. Yeah. I. Uh, because they were super cheap and they're massive mm -hmm. and it looked like you had a well you you did have a real rig but right. um 
<laughs> it was a PV console. So it's just people would come in and say, what is that? And it's a PV. And it's like, really? Right. And But it was great. I mean, it was it did the trick. Yeah, oh, yeah. I have a friend at home. I, I see he still has one. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, But it was at the time when those PCs you could get to get to a four that was a big piece that was reasonable that you could feel like you were in the big times even though you weren't but you're right you know you can still make quality um, products out of that right right so let's move on mm-hmm. uh you're recording and then kind of moving on from there what was your yeah i was, I was doing stuff in my project studio and actually uh, I'll, I'll tell you one of the most biggest learning experiences I had was I somehow got connected with this radio station and they wanted to do parody songs. Oh, yeah. And so what I would do is I would take the hit of the day and I would recreate all the instrumental tracks and then they would write their comedy lyrics yeah. on top of it. So I spent a good year recreating all these commercial productions as exactly as I could using my little studio at home, you know, figuring out a way to, I didn't have a banjo, so if there was a banjo part, I figured out a way to do it either with a sampler or with a guitar and effects or whatever, and, yeah. you know, get it as close as I possibly could, and that was a tremendous learning experience for I both bet. recording and for arranging and for, for everything else, playing-wise and everything. So I was doing that, I was doing the project studio, I was playing a lot, uh, I was in grad school uh, studying composition, classical guitar, and I had uh, actually, I wrote a piece uh, it started out as an assignment and it kind of went on from there but the idea was to take uh it was a 20th century composition class and so i took the fibonacci number series and used that to create uh, melodic and harmonic material for a piece of music mm-hmm. and uh it, it ended up being a piece that was synthesizers along with percussion ensembles there were uh, two marimbas snare drum piano timpani and miscellaneous percussion and so i scored this whole thing out and i recorded that and uh uh, actually, unbeknownst to me, they submitted it to uh, Neris for the Grammys, oh, wow. and it ended up winning. No way. In in '91, uh, it was a piece called Prophecy Number no. One. I went on to do two uh, two additional pieces. So it was an interesting time in my life because I was doing all this stuff, and it was it was fine. Uh, I was super busy. I was in school, but I kind of reached a point where, with school, if I continue on, I pretty much have to go on and get a doctorate to get hired at another school. And there yeah. were at that time, there were 200. You know, I, I didn't just didn't. There were 200 applicants for every composition job that went open up at a school, yeah. and it's probably like that now as well. And I wasn't at a point where I could really teach classical guitar, so the academic thing was interesting me less and less and less. Yeah. And I had felt like I had kind of gone as far as I could with the project studio and with, you know, again the performing thing. I'd reached that point where I was like, well, I think I've gone as far as I can with what I'm doing at this point. So I was just looking for a change. Yeah. yeah. Didn't know quite what to do. Um, once again, with the composing and everything, I didn't know well, so I could move to L.A. and try and do film scoring or something. But once again, I don't know how to do that. I don't yeah. know how to, you know, I just <laughs> didn't, didn't uh, you know, have the, the in or the, the way to really think about it. It's, it's just a little different now. It's than a scary it than, thought. You, to you know, there was no call. Internet. There yeah. was no, you didn't, you know, you had to kind of go and do it. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, I just happened to be paging through Mix Magazine. In the back of Mix Magazine, there was this little advertisement for this place called Sweetwater. And they were looking for sales engineers. And so I just called them up. Yeah. And, and uh, they said, well, send in a resume. And so, uh, so I sent in a resume, and they brought me up, and I met Chuck, uh, Chuck Surak, who's uh, still the owner, the founder and still the owner. Um, at the time, it was a little metal building in a gravel parking lot. There were maybe 20 people working there. And uh, so I made the leap. I left Kansas City. I moved to Fort Wayne and uh, became the fifth sales engineer. Wow. Here, uh, there were a couple people who had come and gone in the in the meantime, but I was a fifth of so there were five of us on the phones, and yeah. uh, Chuck was actually selling full time on the phone as well at that time. They had the studio, 
that was still part of the, the, the part of Sweetwater. And um, so I, I came here and kind of threw myself into that, which was a, a tremendous opportunity, but also a tremendous education because you really had to be expert. Yeah. You know, it's, it's such a different approach to uh, gear sales here at Sweetwater than other places. And even in those days, that's always, Chuck has always had the same vision and it's just bigger now yeah. than it was then. It hasn't changed. You know, it was still all about expertise. It was still all about customer service. It was still all about the relationship with customers and developing that. And, and so I, I came up here and settled into Fort Wayne doing, doing that. And I kind of stopped playing. Yeah. Was, you know, I played a little bit on weekends here and there with, with a couple different groups, but I didn't do a whole lot. I was writing some. Um, and, uh, you know, working here, having access to a lot of gear, I built a nice home studio and, yeah. you know, kind of got into that whole side of it. Uh, but uh, I really focused on that career aspect of it. So what what year was that when you, you moved here? That was 92. 92, okay. Yeah. yeah, I remember I started November 1st, 1992 yeah. is when I started. Uh, and uh, the, the building was just about a mile down the road yeah. from us here and, and uh, just a small little, little place. The studio was in the back and there was a room for... Like I think six of us out front of that, and a little shipping department, a little yeah. repair department, and about twenty of us. So wow, that's uh, yeah, it's quite a leap. <laughs> quite a leap from, to today, right? With yeah. uh, I think there's fifteen hundred people in this building at this point, and you know, I don't know how many three hundred and some thousand square feet and more being added. You know, yeah. hundred thousand more. So it's just it's been an amazing thing to watch what's happened with this company through the years. So you all you were also writing for EQ magazine, right? Um, not, not yet. Not yet. So what happened was I um, I moved out of sales and moved into the marketing department uh, after a couple of years and did uh, I did the first catalog, uh, started doing the the newsletter, the print newsletter, sweet notes that yeah. we still do. Um, toward the end of that time, I also started the InSync daily blog. Okay. Uh, I did the word for the day glossary, so every day I'd define a word for the glossary. Every day I did a tech tip for yeah. the website. We had one of the first music uh, websites in the industry, and uh, and so I was really involved in that. And so I was doing a lot more writing, yeah. a lot more uh, of that kind of stuff. And uh, once again, reading a magazine, I came across an ad in the back of Keyboard Magazine, and they were looking for an editorial assistant. And I thought, well, I mean, my heroes were... I remember when I was in, in high school, I got my first copies of Guitar Player Magazine and Keyboard Magazine. I just yeah. devoured those, and I looked up so much to those editors, and I knew all the writers' names, and I followed what they did. Yeah. You know, people like Craig Anderton and, and uh, Jim Aiken and yeah. Tom Mulhern and all, all these guys who were just stars to me. Yeah. And so I, on a whim, sent them a resume and said I wasn't even looking really for a change, but it just that was something I always wanted to do, right, yeah, to, yeah. Be, uh, to be part of one of those magazines. It was like a dream to me. And so I uh, sent them out a resume, and they... They called me up and they said, well, you're way overqualified for editorial assistant, but we could really use a technical editor at Keyboard Magazine. Yeah. And so uh, uh, in 1998, I moved out to the Bay Area and became the technical editor and later the senior technical editor at Keyboard Magazine. And I uh, started actually, um, well, I'd be right about this time of year, right at the beginning of January, just in time to go to the NAMM show, so yeah. my very first NAMM show. But I, I was in heaven. Because okay. the, you know, I was working with all those guys and I knew their names, and it was just, uh, it was just amazing for me to to step into that and be be part of that whole thing. And it was kind of also the tail end, while I was there and up till I, I left. It was really the tail end of kind of the glory days of the music magazine of magazines yeah. in general. Yeah, you know that, that industry has changed so dramatically, and uh, so I moved to the Bay Area and uh, loved every minute of that. I did that for two years at Keyboard Magazine, and the same company owned EQ Magazine. Yeah. They were based in uh, New York, and they came to me and said, hey, you know, we're changing the way EQ's done, and we really want to hire a full-time editor to come in. Would you be interested? 
and so I jumped at the chance to basically have my own magazine at that point. And oh, so, yeah. so I moved from the Bay Area to uh, New York in uh, January of 2000. That's when I did that and took over at EQ Magazine. And I was there till about 2005. And in the course of that, I actually moved to Nashville because I was, I was in the New York office, but all of the production and everything was out on Long Island. Yeah. So I was really kind of working remotely, Anyways, even though yeah. I was in New York. And so I, I knew people in, in uh, Nashville and I wanted a space where I could have a studio, which was I just couldn't do in New York in an apartment. Yeah. And so, uh, so I moved to, uh, to Nashville uh, somewhere around 2002, I guess it was, and I uh, met my wife there and, and kind of got into that scene and did the magazine from there. And uh, stayed with EQ till mid-2005. And by that point, the, the corporate thing had gotten so untenable. Yeah. You know, and, and uh, the way, well, anyway, it just, a lot of the fun had gone out of it yeah. <laughs> for me at that yeah. point. Yeah. Uh, and so I decided to make a change. Yeah. And I had stayed on really good terms with Chuck. I left on good terms from Sweetwater and stayed in touch with them. And we'd worked on various promotions and things through the years. And uh, so I called him up and he said, well come back to Sweetwater and do what you do for the magazines, but do it for me. Yeah. And uh, so I, my wife and I packed up and moved back to Fort Wayne in, in uh, I guess it was like March of 2005, and uh, settled in here. And initially, when I came back, I was doing a lot more of the print stuff, yeah. the, the uh, catalogs and the newsletters and a lot of web work. And again, I was back doing the word for the day and the tech tip of the day. So if you go to those glossaries, there's like 4,000 words for the day up there. I've probably done 3,000 of those, yeah. <laughs> those definitions. <laughs> um, and uh, and so I started doing that, and uh, and also uh, around 2009, this whole video thing kind of started. There was some interest in that, and yeah. so so we decided to test the waters, and so we went into my office with a little camera, and I think our first episodes were like, "Hey, here's something cool that came across my desk. Check this out," you know, yeah. kind of thing. And, and uh, they're kind of painful to go back and watch it yeah. <laughs> at this point, but you know, it was it it's was start, for the day. It yeah, was that's great. what people were doing. You know, yeah. it was it was real. It was casual. It was, you know, and um, found out I was kind of good at it. You know, yeah. I just kind of could do those demos and things very well. And then when we started getting artists in and started doing the interviews and things, discovered that I kind of have a knack for doing it. Yeah. And uh, so my my job here now is a um, uh, large part of it is, is videos. I shoot videos three afternoons a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and then other times as well. And of course, I go to trade shows and I go to uh, different events. And uh, so I do a lot of video work. I also write for the website and do a lot of that, that kind of thing and for social media. And uh, I teach some classes for the sales engineers here. Yeah. Uh, and uh, just so many different things. I mean, one of the beautiful things about my job is that there's no routine. Yeah. And, uh, and a lot of it is uh, project-based. And so I get to, you know, play with gear and talk to artists and talk to people like you. And, and uh, I have an amazing job. I'm so blessed. It's, uh, it's just so fun. Yeah, it seems like probably a dream job for a lot of people I, yeah I hear yeah. that a lot yeah actually it, and I, I always tell them you can't have it I have it. yeah <laughs> I'm not letting it go <laughs> I guess not no and, and you and it's funny now you go back and you were talking about keyboard magazine and EQ and and that was really an important in that time period when you you picked those magazines up that was a big deal mm -hmm. I mean that you learned yeah. a lot from I remember just studying those magazines like crazy um, well we had two I, I remember the I think the biggest issue we ever did of EQ was 220 pages wow that's a big magazine yeah that's a lot of words that's a lot of articles and uh, and so you know there's a lot of information yeah in those in those magazines and there wasn't nowhere else to get that kind of you know granted there's a three-month lead time or whatever I'm producing a magazine but you know 
where else are you going to get that kind of information? There was no, no. web the way there is now. No, uh, you know, it was starting to get get rolling or whatever, but those educational resources weren't weren't there. And so, yeah, so yeah, yeah. it was it, it was a great time to be doing that because I, I did the same thing. I mean, when I came up, I had uh, I remember one one time I had to move out of an apartment to move to a different one, and a buddy came over to help me move, and and he walked in, and I had bookcase after bookcase after bookcase of keyboard and guitar player and uh, you know guitar for the practicing musician at the time and yeah. EQ and mix and tape op and I mean, all these thousands of magazines from all the years because I subscribed to every one of them yeah and every month I'd read every word in every one of those magazines I just love that so it, that again that's why it was such a huge thing for me to go to work for those magazines it was just like a dream come true and and you you would like you said you'd keep those copies mm-hmm. not like nowadays where it's kind of everything seems to be pretty disposable you read and it's gone and you can know you can find out but back then that was your only resource yeah so i remember keeping stuff and going back and it's like, i remember reading something about this right and you go mm-hmm. find the the uh issue and you and read, read up it and, and yeah. read the reviews and, and all that yeah i kept all those magazines for a lot of years and there weren't even a lot of there were some books but not a lot of books yeah. like there are now and I've, I've since written seven books too that that uh, were during that period i wrote those as well because again those, those were the resources that you had yeah in those days so does eq exist no 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 it uh a few years after i left I uh, went through some changes, and then they, I think they kind of rolled it into Electronic Musician, and yeah. it kind of, or they rolled it into a keyboard or something, and it kind of vanished, and then keyboard kind of vanished, and so yeah, late lamented. It's disappointing when you go to, you know, the odd time I find myself on a magazine rack or, uh, you know, a big bookstore, because um, I used to just go there and just spend hours just you know right. looking at stuff too, and but it's still disappointing when you you find a trade uh, magazine. And you pick it up, and it's just like, there's like, oh, there's like 10 pages here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah it, it's, it's really changed. Painful then, to look at, yeah. It just. But you yeah. understand why that's happened, and it's happened with yeah, newspapers. And, what do you do? I mean, yeah. it's, it's hard to, and I don't have the answer. I mean, how do you keep that relevant? Yeah. With all that. You know, I found Sweetwater, and I think Sweetwater's always great because you always had that back of the magazine ad, I remember. And I'm a. a Motu guy, digital performer. Sure. For years, right. and I always remember going to the back, and there was always lots of information about digital performer on, on Sweetwater, and then their interfaces, and so that was always the first thing I gravitated to when I grabbed a magazine and go back and see, oh, Motu's come up with a new interface, or right. Um, uh, but yeah, there was you know lots of that, but that was my first start uh, with Sweetwater, and and I don't think I was ordering anything at that point, but I was just looking, always looking at that. Yeah. And then uh, I remember my first experience ordering from Sweetwater, and, uh, and you know, it showed up in my door. I'm from Canada, and it, it showed up, like, the next day through customs. Right. And I was like, oh, it's here? And I was like, really? Wow. And then, you know, the follow-up call and the, you know, the customer service, and I was like, wow. I mean, I just never experienced that anywhere. Um, and now, the weird thing I've, you know, I think maybe I'm thinking maybe early 2000s, there was a few bigger music stores around you. You'll get in New York City, you'll find, but I think, uh, was it Mars had a... For, uh, yeah, Mars was around for a Mars while. Mars round. Uh, that was always a big store when I came mm-hmm. to the U.S. I would always try to find one of those out. Um, but now I find when I go to uh, a music store, uh, it really seems like it's catering to someone not in my position. So yeah. it seems very beginner-based, 
you can get your kind of essential guitars. You know, you might find a few shops that have some boutique stuff, and um, but trying to find some recording gear. Um, remember in the early, you used to always be able to go in a music store, and there used to be three or four uh, mixing consoles. Right. Um, you'd have a choice of a few, um, and at least you got it a chance. But now it seems like you go in and there's just not much there to look at. Um, yeah, yeah, it, uh, you know, and that, that changed over the years too. Part of part of Chuck's whole vision was, as as you're just describing, when you get even back in the day, when you got to a certain point, there wasn't really a store to go to anymore unless you were in a big city. Yeah, you know, and so so he was always like, you know, I want to buy this gear and I want to talk to somebody who knows about it and I want to you know get information, I want to back support, you know, yeah. and uh, all those kind of things. And where are you going to go? Yeah, for all that. So a lot of that was. A lot of starting Sweetwater was trying to provide that for his friends. Yeah, you know, we were talking a little bit earlier. The store actually, Sweetwater actually started as a recording studio, and Chuck had bought a K250, which was this amazing Kurzweil keyboard that had come out, and and uh, it was very high end. And people like uh, Kenny Rogers and and uh, Stevie Wonder and and uh, Dolly Parton and people like that were using that keyboard. And uh, Chuck bought one for his studio and figured out a way to reverse engineer it and to create sounds for it. And so all those artists started buying equipment uh, buying those sounds yeah. from Chuck and trading sounds with him and they said well we're buying you're getting these sounds from you why can't we get the keyboard from you why can't we get this from you and so he became a dealer for Kurzweil and, and added other brands and things as they requested him and it's grown from there but it really did all start at its core as Chuck trying to help his friends with the same problems he was having is where are you going to get this stuff from where are you going to talk to somebody who actually knows what they're talking about yeah yeah I think there's a store back home a local store that I had a chat with they were revamping, and and I, I told one of the uh, fellows that works there, and I said, you know, you should really put together a division because I'm I was ordering from Sweetwater and could see, you know, I've got my same sales guy I can call all the time, and right. and we have you know rapport, you feel like you know him, and um, if he doesn't have to be in, you you get a call from someone else right away and say he's going to be in, but I can help you, the usual stuff right. you get from Sweetwater. But I was I, I told the local store. Why don't you have a little division that you know where people in my position in the area who are recording engineers and, and sound engineers who are probably buying and want to have experience beyond what someone wants to come in and buy a $100 acoustic guitar for. So I can give you a call and say, hey, it's Darren. I need, uh, you know, I need a price on this or can you get it? And feel like I don't have to go to the guy in the front desk who's... 18 I've never met before because he's just started working last week and explained to him I usually get a discount right <laughs> <laughs> I usually even in the rental department you know you after a while you you know you just sort of like you go in it's like well you get your usual discount and you go in I always hate it go in it's like oh there's someone new right <laughs> and they said you know I've been coming here for 20 years and then it's like you know can I have your license please and I was like oh really <laughs> Oh, right. <laughs> it's that, you know, right. it's like going to Starbucks and they know your name. I mean, it just makes you feel great, right? right. Yeah, right. And, uh, and the relationship is so important. Yeah. And we have, uh, we have uh, just minuscule, almost non-existent turnover. So if you start with a sales engineer, you're probably going to be with that sales engineer for, for a lot of years. And they get to know you, you get to know them, and they do get that kind of stuff. You, yeah. know, you get that rapport, like you said, back and forth and knowledge about each other and what you're doing and how they can help you. And that helps them help you, Yeah, which is really cool. Yeah, yeah. So you've done a ton of, ton of interviews here. I have done, yeah. Uh, you know, thousands probably of, of videos of some sort. I think I've done about what well, we were adding up the other day, and mm-hmm. it's, it's probably approaching 2,000 videos wow. in, in that, since 2009. So, quite so, a few. 
So who are some of the people that you've really enjoyed interviewing? What were some of your highlights on people? Oh, man. There have been so many. I, I have to say that... It, to, to go look at it from the other direction, people always ask me who was the worst or who was the most difficult or who was a problem. Yeah. It, it has been universally very gratifying that we just have not run into that. Everyone who comes in has been really, you know, accommodating and happy to do it and and uh, glad to be to be part of it and to uh, to learn about Sweetwater and to you know all that kind of stuff. But uh, I I enjoy the just for me personally, there there are two that I enjoy. I enjoy talking with the the um, the uh, I don't know how else to say it. The big name engineers and producers yeah. are always people that I really enjoy picking their brain. Uh, you know George Massenberg and Bruce Swedeen and Frank Filippetti and Ed Cherney and and Eddie Kramer and you know yeah. all these different people who've, who've been in here that I've uh, uh, had a chance to Alan Parsons and these, these different uh, amazing engineers and to get a chance to pick their brain about how they they did some oh, of the yeah. things they did the amazing mm-hmm. recordings they made. So those are always fun. Um, on the artist side of it, it, it really is, it's always interesting talking to artists because they always have a different story. They always have a different path they followed. They're always doing different things. But I, I really enjoy the ones that I can kind of dig in and talk, go deeper on the music yeah. side of it. And, uh, you know, so, so getting someone in like a, a John Patitucci or, or a Robin Ford or an Osnoy or, you know, these people who you can really, you know, dig deep in the, uh, the musical side of it is always a lot of, a lot of fun for me. But they're all, they're all great. It's, uh, you know, some of the more fun ones. Uh, Bootsy Collins was a was a real treat getting to meet him and, and yeah. interview him. And, and in fact, that was a fairly long interview. It was like forty five minute interview. We could have kept going for another two hours yeah. uh, because he just had endless stories and endless this cool stuff and, uh, and a lot of depth of knowledge about what he's doing and and, uh, and things. So that was that was a fun one. Gene Simmons from Kiss was fun because I was a huge yeah, Kiss fan good, back yeah. in the day. You know, mm-hmm. um, I'm a huge Robin Ford fan. So so getting to sit down with him was was fun. You know, those are just some that that were my, were my personal favorites. Yeah. Um, but they've all been great in their in their own way. There's you know I really can't point to one and say that wasn't a very good interview or that wasn't because they're all they've all been great. Yeah. yeah, they all have their own story and their own yeah. personality. It's, it's fun. So you have a new EP. It's I guess it would be an EP, right? It is an EP. Yeah, yeah that just came out. Mm-hmm. Um, let's chat about that. You sent me uh, um, a bunch of those songs and. Uh, put them on and it's like wow it sounds really great oh thank you yeah thank you yeah it's called foundation Mm -hmm. and it's a five song ep it's uh uh, for lack of a better way to describe it it's uh kind of uh blues jazz yeah maybe not jazz blues maybe blues jazz depending on which song you're listening to uh but i was uh i I call it a a project of opportunity because I'm, i'm always writing i had you know i have dozens and dozens of pieces in various states of being unfinished yeah. you know that are waiting around but what happened was that these uh, amazing musicians were coming in to do a recording workshop in the studios here we do these all the time with with well-known musicians and things and and it was a uh, keith carlock who's the drummer for steely dan and toto and mike stern and all these amazing uh, you know he's been doing that for for decades and he's yeah. truly a virtuoso of drums and michael whitaker who was an la film score tv score keyboard player he's now in nashville and doing a lot of music and film scoring from there and uh, adam nitty uh, on bass and Adam's a, you know, a virtuoso bass player based out of Nashville, does a lot of session work, tours with Kenny Loggins and uh, Dave Weckel and people, yeah. people like that. So these guys were coming in to record. I said, well, what if I just asked them to come in a day early yeah. and said, hey, will you do a session with me if I asked you to come? And they didn't know it was me. The studio just said, hey, we've got a session. You guys want to come in a day early and, and do the session? And they're like, yeah, sure, whatever. Yeah. Just to, you know, we'll drive up a day early from Nashville. They're all based out of there. And so... Uh, I was under the gun to write some music at that point to yeah. get some charts finished up and things. And I was literally photocopying charts at nine o'clock that morning before ten o'clock downbeat for wow. the uh, 
So we, uh, we got five songs tracked in one day, and I really wanted to track the basic tracks as a band. Yeah. I wanted that live, live vibe. Floor, yeah. And, uh, you know, with musicians of that caliber, there's no gridding. You don't have to fix the drums. You don't, you know, I yeah. think there were, we did uh, two takes of each song, and I chose a complete take. Yeah. So that there were no, I didn't comp basic tracks in any way. There were, I think there were like two punch-ins where we fixed a note. Yeah. You know, kind of thing. And uh, other than that, any editing I did was just clean up, you know, just just to to uh, fix a noise or, you know, something something like that, which was really what I wanted out of the project. Because I I, I don't know how 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 you work, but I I tend to be a perfectionist with that kind of stuff. And if I'm left to my own devices and if I'm doing it all myself, it never gets done. Yeah, because (laughs) because I'm going to fool with it till I think it's perfect and it never reaches that point. I know how you mean. So in this case, you know, they they played perfect tracks and it was just great. I, I was so excited. And uh, I had an opportunity then after that, uh, a friend of mine, Carl Verheyen, who plays drum, uh, plays guitar with uh, Super Tramp and is a well-known LA session guitar player, was here doing some things. And he sat in on three songs and played, uh, played on those. And uh, then I heard about a, there was a session going on in Nashville. They were doing a choir session and they weren't going to use the whole day. Yeah. So I said, well, if I take the rest of the day and get a horn section together, Maybe we could drop that on the end of the, the, the thing. And so uh, John Hinchy, who's a trombone player in Nashville, who also does arranging, horn arranging, yeah. uh, did arrangements for three songs for me. And uh, we went in with, uh, you know, the kind of the A-list horn players in, in Nashville. We went into Ocean Way down there. Yeah. And uh, in, in an hour and a half, laid down all the horn parts. And uh, Tyler Summers, who's a saxophone player, a Nashville session sax player, uh, came in and, and did solos and played some melodies and things. And he was part of the horn section as well. Yeah. And so in two and a half hours, we had all the horn stuff done. And once again, I mean, there's no editing. There's no yeah, it's fixing. It's, you know, yeah. it's just kind of, so it was, it was really brilliant from that standpoint of being able to work with musicians on that level. Yeah. But it purely was a, man, I guess I'll just ask. Yeah. You know, and, and if it works, it works. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. So I, I call it a project of opportunity because of that, because people just said yes. And I, I've been surprised, not, not surprised, I, I've been gratified by how willing people are to be a part of you know, what you want to do if you just ask them. Yeah. And I, I think a lot of people are, are afraid to do that, right? Yeah. Because they think it's my podcast I did just before this was a, with a, a guitar player from, from Canada. And he's Toronto's kind of number one session guy through the 80s 90s and early 2000s and you know he in his podcast he would talk about working they'd work seven days a week you know 12 hours a day there right. was jingles and albums and, and tv shows it was just continuous work um and i remember the day when i decided and i was you know i really like to to hire him and just sort of see what that was like and I was really nervous about it because I didn't know whether I'd be able to rise to what the level that he was right. used to working at right so he came in and it was life-changing like it really was it was like he played the solo and I was like um yeah I think that was that was it right you know it would be like first takes and I remember his first acoustic track we were doing a a, a country project and he, he laid down a finger-picking uh, acoustic track, and I said, all right, let's double it. And he doubled it note for note, top to bottom. Right. And I, it was done, I was like, I've never experienced anything like that. And usually you have to go back, okay, well, we had a little part here that wasn't quite the same, feels a little off-balance, the other right. part. And it was the first take. 
And I was like, oh, this is what it's about. Right. And it's just a different thing. You get used to, uh, and there's nothing wrong with working with people. You, you know, you take a bunch of takes or even with good people, you you know, some, that's how some people do it. They like yeah. to take a bunch of stuff and put it together. Right. But there's something really cool about getting those players who can just play it all one take and you don't have to worry about anything and you're done. And I like, right. I like that. The other difference, two other differences I noticed with people on that level is number one, they are universally, every one of them I've met, I've worked on some sessions with guys like Jim Horn, who's done horn saxophone you know, on countless things, and Blue Lou Marini and J.R. Robinson, who's a drummer out of L.A., guys who, who, if you don't know their names, you've heard them a million yeah. times. But universally, Carl Verheyen is in this category as well. They are idea machines. Yeah. They're never short on an idea of something. And if you don't like something, they'll do something else. Yeah. And it's, there's no attachment there. And so that, that whole aspect of it is amazing. But the other thing that I really learned is, you know, I'd always read these interviews in the magazines where the engineer would say, well, I moved my mic a half an inch and it made a huge difference. And I, I never use EQ and I rarely use compression and I never have to do any of that stuff. And I thought about the sessions that I was doing. I was having to EQ the heck out of things, and yeah. I was having to—I wasn't hearing a big difference when I moved it. Working with players on that level, they deliver a finished sound. Yeah. And on the CP, there's very little EQ and almost no compression on any of it because they deliver a finished sound. All you have to do is clean up the ends, the beginning yeah. and the end, a little bit, and uh, and it's kind—it's of, kind of a finished recording, which is, was a very interesting thing as well. Is that they're just so experienced at delivering a sound that's going to work. Yeah. And that, that you don't need to do a lot after the fact. Yeah, it's it's bizarre, isn't it? It's mm-hmm. just kind of you're just so used to having the futs and you right. know you'll you fix it in the mix or whatever. And if you just turn stuff up and it's just like oh, you look down. There's no EQ on that, right? And it sounds great, right? Um, and then you do get those subtle changes if you want to move the mic a little bit. You right. do hear those changes at that point because it's so good. And um, yeah, it's it's a treat. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's not tons of people at that level no it in there but they're you know like i say they're they're willing that, yeah. that's their job they they want them to do sessions they, yeah. that's how they make their living is, is doing that kind of stuff and playing and, and the uh, other thing i found about those people in that position they are really the nicest people i've ever met always yeah always and in fact uh, even we were talking about interviewing artists and producers and things it's the exact same way yeah they're i have never run into a diva for lack of a better way to say it at least with what we're doing here yeah they're just you're not gonna be around you know if people don't like to work with you if they don't want to be around you it doesn't matter how good you are there's other people yeah (laughs) you know there's always and if they're nice i'd far rather work with the nice one than the one who's not nice and so yeah I've, i've found that almost universally true yeah that's great so moving on uh quickly next week is nam Yes, it is. You're heading out there. Yep. Uh, I'm sure you've been multiple, multiple times. And I have been to, this will be my 21st winter NAM that I've been to, and maybe a few more summer NAMs yeah. that I've gone to. Yeah, I've been to a few. So do you uh, predict anything exciting this year for NAM, or is it going to be one yeah, of those go-between years? You always find that yeah. with NAM is like one year's exciting, next year it's kind of like, eh, nothing really, and then the next year there's some new innovation. And, right. Um, yeah, it's a, it's it's a little harder for me to be surprised because yeah. we do learn about things early because we do catalogs and we do the yeah. website and, and things. And I actually, we try to do some videos that are ahead of time. Yeah. Um, there's always surprises, though. There's always new things going on there. You know, I think maybe, it's, I, I don't know, for years I went looking for what's the next big thing, what's the revolutionary product, what's going to change our lives. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think it's a misconception to believe that's going to happen every year. You know, there's there was the ADAT. There's, you know, the various things that were 
a few things yeah. that have done that, but not very many. No. That have really revolutionized. It, it's more of a progression as, as things evolve and, and get better and better and better. So if you're asking me what's going to be the breakout, revolutionary, change your life product, I haven't heard of one. Yeah. Doesn't mean it's not there. there yeah. But I, I get excited every year. Yeah. I just love seeing there's always so much new stuff. And, and uh, I, I think it's easy to get a little bit, uh, especially having gone to so many, get a little jaded. Yeah. You know, oh, it's the latest this, it's the latest that. But, you know, if you step back, wow, that's the latest this, that's the latest that. And it's better in this way and it's cool in this way and it's less money and it, you know. Uh, so I, I have a tremendous time at NAM. I, I always look forward to it. You know, and there's also the benefit that, you know, we're in the middle of a, a snow here and, and it's in Anaheim, California. So that's yeah. always a nice break, too, to get, get a little sunshine in January. The one thing I do miss a bit that I find is not quite as popular in NAM is the amount of performances at booths and little rooms off the side. They're still there. Oh, yeah. But I don't find I see the, the really stellar ones that, you know, there's always great ones, but they're not as many as they used to be. Is it, was that just me, or is it that just seemed to be the? You know, do you know what's that? I, I think that kind of ebbs and flows. Yeah, a little bit. Um, you know, the the whole trade show thing, and not Nam specifically, but all trade shows have changed since I started going. And a big part of that is the web. Yeah. Is that everybody knows about things, and and actually a lot of manufacturers now are choosing to introduce products outside of trade shows. Yeah. And so I think the trade shows are are. It used to be, like when I was with Keyboard and EQ, you'd go to the trade show, and that was where you found out about the new products, and everybody announced their products at NAMM. So yeah. it was all very concentrated. They bring the artists in. They do all the stuff. But uh, now there are several manufacturers that are choosing to introduce in the fall. We've got a bunch of them that have been releasing these last couple weeks. Yeah. You hear new products that have been coming out that will be shown for the first time at NAMM, but maybe aren't being announced at NAMM. Yeah. And so I think there's a little less of that push on, on that, just because you know the world's different. Than it, yeah. than it used to be, and the trade shows are certainly different than they used to be as well. It's almost like having uh, an iPhone. Everyone thinks every time a new one comes out, it's going to be some revolutionary device. And I think technology has gone so far that you can only push it so far. You yeah. know, it, there's only big advances, only so many years. Exactly. Um, and there were little increments from there on out. Right. Um, and it gets harder and harder and harder to find that revolutionary kind of a thing. It's like, well, music is the same way, right? Yeah. You know, who's the latest revolutionary musician to really come out, or when was the last one you can think of who truly revolutionized music? Yeah, and then things come back to, you know, let's let's go back to analog again. You right. know, that's probably going to come around where it's like everyone's going to be now having a complete analog studio, right. and, and that would be, oh, it's the new thing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's pretty, uh, pretty interesting, and, it, and I'm sure it's pretty thrilling uh, you know, keeping up and and having the inside scoop uh, and seeing products and it is and, a huge uh, part of my job staying yeah. up with what's new and uh, you know that's it's one of the challenges of my job also is uh, I, I cover a wide range of things I, I pretty much cover everything except drums yeah and so staying uh, because we have Nick DiVirgilio here who specializes in in drums um, and so you know, keeping up with all of it and learning the products for demos on videos and, and articles and things, that, that is a huge, huge part of my job is just doing that, yeah. you know, staying current. Well, the, the fun thing about watching your product videos and when you're doing interviews, um, you really tell you have a wide uh, knowledge base. You know, Thank you. You. Can, you, can, you can tell where you came from and that you knew you were the guy who used to patch the PA and you right. know in the trouble because you can you can relate really well and you have really great um, you know you see some people with product reviews and you you know they don't really know the right. equipment but you always I guess, I guess it's a trust thing 
if you're talking about I, you can trust what you're saying oh, thank is, you. is correct and and it really comes across really really well i don't think there's anyone i know that does anything close to what you're doing so oh thank you very much right wow i really appreciate that yeah. it's a, i really do try to be to be authentic number one and number two to be accurate yeah and to to not make mistakes when they slip through everybody makes mistakes and, and oh. you know, it's always cringeworthy when something <laughs> slips through but <laughs> but i try to minimize no, it doesn't happen real often so i'm you know i'm grateful for that yeah uh, but yeah it's a yeah, it, it's it's really cool to be able to take all those years of history, if you will, and all that experience and all the opportunities that I said yes to, and they all kind of come together yeah. in, into what I'm doing now, which has been really fun to, yeah. uh, to kind of have a chance to use all of that through the year. Even the electrical engineering that I studied for a year, at least I have a basic understanding of resistors and you know capacitors and you know that, that kind of stuff. I can So even that has come full circle back around to where I... You know, at least I can follow when somebody's talking. Yeah, on, on that level. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it all—it's funny how all that pays off in the end. Olivia, I, I know you've taken a lot of time with me, and I really appreciate that. I want oh, to kind of fun. leave you with one last little thing. Since you're this kind of multi guy who's done a multitude of different things, uh, if you had to strip it all away and someone say you can only do this from now on, um, <laughs> do you know? Do you know what that one? thing would be if what it would be one? you know the guy sets up the pier or the guitar player or the you know w- the studio session guy or the engineer or all those things what you're doing now what was the one thing you think if you stripped everything away that you you just couldn't stay away from wow that is a that i've never been asked that before that, mm-hmm. that's a really interesting question um um uh, as long as I don't have to make a living doing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, just, yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, no, I would, uh, you know, probably I, I started out as a guitar player. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think I, you know, I, I think we we get past our rock star aspirations, but there's part of us that always still wants to be a musician and do that full time. And so, I, you know, if, if I, if everything was else was uh, taken care of, I would be, a, I'd be a guitar player and a, you know, I'd write, write music and, yeah. and be a performer and do that, that whole thing. That's what I thought the answer was going to be. <laughs> but, I get to, but, but I get to do that, right? I, yeah, well, that's I, a great I get thing. to do it as well. It's part of what I do. So yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm perfectly happy. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, thank well, you. thank you a lot. Uh, thanks a bunch for uh, spending some time. And oh, it's been so much fun. Thank you. Uh, I feel like I know you a lot better now, so that's awesome. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, it was great to get to meet you. Thanks for coming, uh, coming down here to Sweetwater. Glad to have you here. Appreciate it. Come All back right. soon. I will. Thanks All a lot. Right. You bet. Bye.